Well, back in the fall, we spent a few weeks looking at the Old Testament book of Daniel and the Bible together as a church. And to do that, we gave out these uh, little ESV Daniel journal Bibles. If you did not get one then, there are some in the back Um, You can go grab one. If you have one at home, we would love for you to bring that back next week. And um, we are going to keep going through these books. We're jumping back into Daniel, which I am so excited about. Um, There's something else I am really excited about is Wordle. I don't know if any of you guys are playing Wordle. I got introduced to Wordle this past week, actually. I did my first Wordle. Uh, That was from Wednesday, I think. I just wanted you to see one I did really fast. Um, If you're not familiar, Wordle is a word game, obviously, but I'm not making this up. You just Google the word Wordle, and the first link you click on it, and that's where you play. You get one word a day, and you try to solve a five-letter word. You've got six guesses, and as you can see, if you get the letter correct in the correct spot, it turns green. If you get it correct but in the wrong spot, it turns yellow, and you have six chances to get the right word. You can only play one a day. Full confession at two this morning. I did play today's. I did not wake up for that purpose, but I was awake, and I knew Wordle was online, and I did play it. Uh, So you play one a day. In Wordle, though, you You start off with a completely blank slate. You have no idea what's there, um, but you know there's a word there. And then as you go along, the the true word, the answer starts to be revealed to you. And the book of Daniel is kind of like that, that uh, Daniel is sort of a book where God is at work under the surface and you can't always see it. In fact, it seems a little bit like the odds are stacked against God showing up or doing anything as you read through Daniel. And then all of a sudden in these moments that God has been at work all along is just revealed through the story. And today what we're going to see is one of those things that helps God uh, be revealed in the story is humility. We're going to look how humility paves the way for us to walk in God's goodness. That we believe that even when we can't see it, even when things aren't going the way we want, even when life is not working out how we hoped, that God is still good and that God is still powerful and that God is still at work and that humility paves the way for us to believe that, to live in that, to walk in that wherever we find ourselves. We're going to see that in our story today. I want you to turn to Daniel chapter 5. If you have one of these Bibles, uh, if you have a, there's a pew Bible in front of you, uh, I'm going to be asking you to write things down, to underline, to circle stuff, because we want to spend these next few weeks really engaging in depth with God's Word and believing that sometimes noticing the little things in a story helps it come to life for us in a new way. And so I'm going to be asking you to make some notes, would encourage you to follow along, but we're in Daniel chapter 5, starting in verse 1. It says, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. So let's pause there. There's going to be a lot of starting and stopping, some fast forwarding. I'm going to walk you through what we're looking at today. But at first, what I need you to see is uh, one of the things I've noticed by 
watching shows on streaming services over the last few years is that sometimes you can get on Netflix and you watch a show and in a matter of days, or even for some of us, hours, we've watched an entire season of a show. And then the show's over and you've got to wait like 10 months, 11 months, 12 months to watch the next show. And then that show comes on and you're like, who, who is that? Where are they? What are they doing? What's the backstory? Because you've lost, for months and months, you've lost the backstory. So I'm going to give you a few brief notes, kind of a cheat sheet, uh, jot down in the margins uh, to catch up, to get reacquainted with the book of Daniel. So the book of Daniel, the events that happened are recorded uh, around the time 600 B.C. So jot down 6th century B.C. And then it progresses throughout the rest of the 6th century. And that's the time frame we're looking at. Uh, write down God's people. So whatever you call them in the Old Testament, they're Israelites, they're they're the Jewish people, they're Hebrews, they are God's people, and this is a story about God's people. But the unique thing about the book of Daniel is it's a story about God's people exiled in Babylon. So write down exiled in Babylon. The Babylonian uh, kingdom, the largest empire the world had known to date, had conquered the Jewish people, taken them from their homeland, at least some of them from their homeland, across that part of the known world to live in Babylon. So these are Jewish people living in Babylon. And then the last thing you write down is that Daniel is about 70 years old. Historians think that Daniel, who was a part of the story all along, that Daniel is now now about 70, he's one of the Jewish uh, people that were brought as a young man from in exile to Babylon. And so one of the major themes of the book of Daniel is that even when the odds look like they're stacked against God, God continues to come through. That God continues to win the day. That God continues to show up for his people. That God is good. That's the theme of Daniel. And I'll show you how it works in this passage that we just read. So there's, there's a couple of words that you might have just glossed over. You might have missed. They might have been throwaway words to you. But the words vessels of gold and of silver. You can underline that. Uh, vessels of gold and of silver. So these were artifacts. They were like cups. Chalice. Think of them as chalices or cups taken from the temple in Jerusalem all those years ago, taken from the temple in Jerusalem, taken to Babylon, and they were put in the temple in Babylon. Now, these were like religious artifacts, sacramental cups that were used for worship in the temple in Jerusalem. Well, now Belshazzar is throwing this party, and he decides, hey, you know what would be really fun is go over to the temple and get those gold and silver chalices from the Israelites, bring them here, we're going to party with them. And so what's happening is the king of the most powerful nation on earth is mocking the religious tradition of the Jewish people. And all the deck is stacked against God. How, what is God possibly going to do? This guy is making a mockery of God. What will God do? We find out right away. Verse 5. Immediately, The fingers of a human hand, if you've never heard this story before, it's a little weird. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote, and then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him, and his limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. Rembrandt has a famous painting of this scene. Can't you just imagine the king's terror as this disembodied hand appears out of nowhere 
and starts writing on the wall. See, Belshazzar takes these vessels from the temple and by, by using them the way he does, he's basically saying, there is nothing behind these. These are worthless. They're just gold and silver. There's no power behind them. And what happens is that pride in our lives causes us to believe that there is no power in our life beyond us. That there's no power beyond what we can control and manipulate. That power resides in us. That's what pride teaches us. And Belshazzar proudly believes that he is the master of his own destiny. And I think a lot of us can identify with that. And how does that work out for him? We're going to fast forward and jump around a few verses. I'll, I'll walk you through it. Um, but what happens next in the story is that the king searches for someone who can interpret this writing on the wall. He can't find anybody. And the queen mother who's there in the room says, hey, there was this guy who used to interpret dreams for King Nebuchadnezzar. He was uh, a Jewish exile named Daniel. So they go and they get Daniel and they bring him, pick back up in verse 17. And Daniel answered, and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. So Daniel is just saying that he will not show favor. That if the, key, if, if the interpretation is negative, it's not on him, it's on the king. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God, gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. Skip to verse 20. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. Verse 22. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you. You and your lords, your wives, your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. So pause there. Two phrases for you to circle. In verse 22, though you knew all this. In verse 24, you have not honored. So these two phrases sum up Daniel's epic indictment of King Belshazzar. And look, we can all relate to what's happening here because this is just a very biblical, uh, I told you so, or you should have known better. And I think about this all the time. For instance, I've lived in Minnesota for almost five years. I should know better than to drive too fast and carelessly on snowy, icy roads. And I do know that most of the time, but every once in a while, I get a little confident. I got four-wheel drive. I can go a little fast. I can take that corner a little quickly. I don't need to stop too far in advance. And that pride causes me, believing in my own abilities more than I should, causes me to rely on myself and make mistakes. Well, so Daniel isn't making some quick, snap, harsh judgment of the king. He tells the king, you should have known better. 
You knew all the stories of the previous king of Nebuchadnezzar and how he challenged the God of Israel and God put him in his place. You should have known better. But the thing is, Belshazzar's pride caused him to become overly reliant upon himself. And it led to disastrous results. We see the rest of it play out in the story. And so verse 25, Daniel interprets the dream. It says, and this is the writing that was inscribed. Many, many tekel parson. So those are ancient Near Eastern monetary denominations. And Daniel sort of repurposes them for the interpretation. Verse 26, this is the interpretation of the matter. Many God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Verse 30, that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received his kingdom, being about 62 years old. Pause there. I made uh, the mistake of going down a social media wormhole this past week. It wasn't about Wordle. Um, it was about another uh, article I saw. And as I looked at this really controversial article that was post posted, I realized it had 78,000 comments. Who's reading 78,000 comments? Nobody with a life is. And more so, who looked at 77,999 comments and thought, that needs one more? And honestly, like 78,000 comments might not be a lot. There might be articles with 300,000 comments. Who keeps adding these comments that no one's reading? It's a pretty clear example that the human heart is proud above all else. That we believe deep down in our hearts, that we are special and we are unique and our voice needs to be heard. That 77,000 people may have said something, but ours needs to be added. We need to get our word in. We need to say our piece, right? Because we believe that we have something special to offer. And the truth is, we don't need to be a Babylonian king to be led astray by the pride in our lives and to believe that we are the center of our own universes and to live as if everything revolves around us. I don't know if you, if you noticed three very common phrases that we use in our culture all the time of doom originate in this text. You've been weighed and found wanting. Your days are numbered. The writing on the wall. Belshazzar's pride becomes his doom. He has relied upon himself and his ego and his abilities. And that pride condemns him to a life of nothing greater than what he can do for himself. And what we know is that pride is a killer. Pride ruins relationships and careers Pride ruins friendships and marriages. We can all think of people who their pride got in the way and they refused 
to do the right thing or say the right thing that would have just made peace because their pride was too great. Pride is a killer. And it writes the death sentences for all of our lives. In fact, the judgment in this text is not just the judgment of Belshazzar. It's God's judgment on all of us. You have been weighed and found wanting. It's literally the image of a scale. Like you got on the scale and you were too light. You didn't weigh anything. You didn't weigh enough. You've been found wanting. You that think so highly of yourself, your life is dust, that you weigh nothing. Your life is inconsequential in light of an almighty God. You've been weighed and found wanting. And your days, your days are numbered. And another will just sit on the throne after you're gone. Life marches on, time marches on, the world marches on without you. Right? That's the judgment on all of us. And the thing is, Belshazzar's pride beckons God to respond. Like, the depth of his sin is so bad that it beckons God to step into history and deal with it. And the good news is that our brokenness is so bad. The depth of the sin and the pride in our hearts is so bad that it beckons God to step into history and respond and do something about it. And he sends his son to come to earth to die on the cross and rise from the dead to release us from our pride, to release us from our sin. God steps into history to change our futures by dealing with our past. If pride seals our fate, humility opens us to the fate of Jesus. C.S. Lewis once said that as long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. Only in humility can we look up and receive what God has done for us. We've all heard the classic definition of humility that's not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Humility is not about beating ourselves up for not being humble enough. It's about changing what we're looking at. It's about looking to Jesus for everything that we need. And when we look to Jesus for everything that we need, we can approach our relationships, our friendships, our school, our work without the destruction that pride brings. Where do you need Jesus to deal with the pride that swells up in you and brings destruction into your relationships in your life? I know for me, uh, one of the things that happens... Uh, I'm sure you won't believe this, but as a pastor, I sometimes get uh, criticism and negative feedback. And, um, and um, when I'm pr- proud, when I'm being prideful, it, it swells up in me, right? When there's a lack of humility, the pride swells up when I get negative criticism and feedback, and, and it causes me to be bitter for way too long. And it causes me to be unable to see the other person the way Jesus sees them. What is it for you? 
Where does pride swell up in you and cause dysfunction and destruction in your relationships and you need God to deal with it? Where do you need less of you and more of Jesus? South African pastor Andrew Murray wrote a book called Humility. It's brilliant. And in it, he says, Humility is the displacement of self by the enthronement of God. And the story of Daniel shows us that God is at work. God is good. God is working all things according to his purposes. And to seek that, we need to be dethroned. We need Jesus on the throne. To see that he's moving in our lives. He's moving in history. He's moving even now in this insane, ridiculous moment we find ourselves in. But we know what God is capable of because we've seen it on the cross of Christ. We can proclaim in all things that God is capable and God is able and that God is good. And humility paves the way for us to walk in God's goodness. No matter what we're going through, humility paves the way it reminds us that God is faithful to his promises. He is a promise maker and a promise keeper. It's the story of Daniel. God's people are far from home, and God keeps with them. He keeps pursuing them. He keeps helping them. He keeps loving them. He keeps guiding them. God is there, and humility allows them to see it even when everyone else can't. Jesus tells his followers, blessed are the humble for the earth shall be theirs. When we live in humility, we experience what God has for us, the fullness of what God has for us. When we realize that the way forward does not lie within ourselves, it lies with Jesus. It lies in not what we can do, but in what God has done for us. The gospel has the power to change lives if we get out of the way. And one more quote from Andrew Murray, I would actually encourage you to write this down in your margins or in a little notebook or take a note because it's, it's a powerful word. Uh, pride must die in you or nothing of heaven can live with you. Pride must die in you or nothing of heaven can live in you. That's what we want, right? We want the things of heaven to live in us and through us to flood the earth with the things of heaven Pride must die in us for heaven to live in us. Friends, pride just gets in the way. It distorts how we see ourselves, how we see others, how we see the world. Jesus, take the pride. Give us you. Give us you. I'm going to invite the band to come back up and lead us in our closing song, but just encourage you to sit in that word of our need for humility, our need for Jesus to do what only he can do in us.